So we are in the middle of chapter 35, and we're still grappling with this question of why is it that the practical deed takes primary importance? You would think that it's the inner vision and the inner journey and the connection to Hashem and the passion and the fire that should constitute the essence of the mitzvah. And the act is only secondary. It's a behavioral thing in order to bring us closer to him. But that's not the case. The essence of the connection is formed through the actual deed of the mitzvah. And this is what the Alter Rebbe is in the middle of explaining. We explore this statement from the Zohar, from the Yanuka, who said, he was looking at the statement from, from Shlomo HaMelech, King Shlomo. Shlomo HaMelech said, the wise man's eyes are in his head. And the Yanuka explained that this means that his focus and his interest is on his head, constantly worrying about supplying oil for the Shekhinah. And then he elaborated, the body is the wick. And the oil are the good deeds. So the light of the Shekhinah is the flame, and that's what rests on a person's head. The body is what holds the fire, keeps it down here. But what sustains the fire? The oil? Those are good deeds. And we can wonder, why can't it be the soul? What about the soul of a very lofty person who's on fire with love for Hashem? Why can't that be the oil? And that's because he is a separate entity. Any person has a consciousness of their own. Even if they are the highest, most sublime person, they have a unique consciousness. A unique consciousness means there's something of an identity other than Hashem. In order to supply the oil for the Shekhinah, there has to be utter nullification. The oil has to get subsumed completely and totally within the fire. An identity means there's something else. It's not totally subsumed. And here we're going to explore now exactly what is a mitzvah. And this is just incredible. We started to explore last week how the mitzvah is Hashem's will. Now, isn't everything Hashem's will? Indeed, everything is Hashem's will. All of existence exists because Hashem wills it. As David HaMelech writes in Tehillim, Kol asher Hashem asa, whatever Hashem desired, he made. All of creation comes about through his desire. Nevertheless, there is a huge difference between all of creation and a mitzvah. We started to say last week that Hashem's will is the source of all of creation, except the way it vivifies all created beings and all worlds is by a process, a process of tzimtzum, contractions, Hester Panim, concealment of the countenance, Yeridas Hamadregais, descent from level to level. All this so that the world, so that the created beings feel themselves to be an entity apart. So isn't everything Hashem's will? Everything is Hashem's will. Does everything feel that it's Hashem's will? No. Most things went through this process of descent so that they are so oblivious to the fact that their entire existence is Hashem's will. They seem to be an entity apart. They have a consciousness and they look like they're separate from Hashem. 
And all of this is in contrast to the mitzvah. So here we are. We're on page one, two, three, four, five. I think it's page six. So all of this is in contrast to the mitzvah. The mitzvah, on the other hand, are the internal aspect of the divine will. What does this mean, the internal aspect of the divine will? So this is a concept that we explored in Tanya before. We're going to explore this again. What is an internal aspect of a will? Let's look at something that you want. And then let's get to the core of it. Okay? So a person answers the phone. Why is he answering the phone? Seemingly because he wants to. Well, no, he doesn't really want to answer the phone. But he's answering the phone because it's his client. And he wants his business to thrive. Okay, so his will is that he wants his business to thrive. Really? Is that his will, that he wants his business to thrive? Let's take this a little bit deeper. Why does he want his business to thrive? He wants his business to thrive so he can have a lot of money. Is that what he wants, a lot of money? Well, take it a little bit deeper. He wants money so he can be comfortable, so he can support his family, so he can have food, clothing, shelter. So is that it? Is that the core of his will? That he wants food, clothing, and shelter? No, there's something deeper than that. He wants to preserve his own existence. Okay? So there's will. But there's the external aspect of will. And there's the internal aspect of will. The external aspect of will has no intrinsic value of its own as far as will goes. It is simply a medium to get something deeper. So for the person who wants to answer the phone, answering the phone has no intrinsic value. It's about making his business thrive. And even his business has no intrinsic value. It's about providing food, clothing, and shelter. And if you're going to take it very, very deep, even that really has no value. It's all about preserving existence. So we want a lot of things. But all those things that we want, most of them are external. They're only there to serve a deeper reason that we have to sit with and then wonder, why do we want that? Now, looking at all these external layers of will, they all say that there's something other than you. There's something outside of yourself that you are drawn to that is going to fulfill you. But when you get to that kernel, that core, that deepest place of will, It's not about anything outside of yourself anymore. It's only about you. It's your very essence. You wish to continue to exist. Okay? And now we're going to take it over to the mitzvahs. Everything that exists, exists because of Hashem's will. But the level of Hashem's will that vivifies all of existence seems to give importance to something that was outside of himself. Of course, there is nothing outside of himself. But because it seems that these things are outside of him, it means that there's a certain layer of concealment of the divine. Hashem is hiding himself, and he wants these things that are seemingly outside of himself. In contrast, when it comes to a mitzvah, There is nothing outside of Hashem in the mitzvah. This is his internal will. It's his very essence being expressed in total 
manifestation without any concealment at all. The mitzvah is simply Hashem's will. There's no side issue to the mitzvah. So this is the mitzvah. We're looking at all of creation and we're saying, yes, it comes from his will, but there's a concealment. With a mitzvah, there's no concealment at all. It is the internal aspect of his will. It is his will. There is no concealment of the divine in a mitzvah. The ain sham hester panim klal. There, the countenance is not hidden at all. For on the contrary, mitzvahs, mitzvot, are the underlying purpose, the inner aspect of will of creation in its entirety. To illustrate by way of example, one engages in business so that he will realize a profit and thereby support his family. In all, he wants the business to prosper, he wants the profits, wants to provide for his family, yet his true inner will lies only in supporting his family. His desire for profit is merely incidental, external to this will, and his desire for business even more so. So too the divine will as expressed in creation and as expressed in the mitzvot. The desire for creation is an external will. It is generated by an inner, meaning ultimate desire, that Jews observe the mitzvot, obviously an impossibility without a created world. So everything is really the scaffolding. We look at the first verse in the whole Torah. It says, In the beginning, Hashem created heaven and earth. And our sages explain this term, in the beginning, to mean Phase racious because of two things that are called racious, the world was created. Torah is called racious darko, the beginning of his way. And the Jewish people are called racious tivuaso, the first of his produce. The Navi Yermia says, Hashem, The Jewish people are holy to Hashem. They are the beginning of his produce. So all of creation exists to support this kernel of truth. Imagine somebody who wants to build a house. So they have to tear down the old building. They have to collect building materials. They have to set up scaffolding. All of this is just because they want to build the house. Those things are external to his will. The person wants to build a house and all the other steps that he takes in order to build the house are just means in order to get his ultimate desire. Hashem created all of these worlds physical and spiritual. Think of the vast universes, of the supernal angels, of the higher worlds, of the lower worlds, just of our physical universe, the vast galaxies, the stars, the sun, all the planets. All of that is just scaffolding to support the inner kernel of truth, the deepest aspect of his will. And that is the Jew and the mitzvah. That is the deepest space. That is pure manifestation of Hashem's will. I'm going to tell you a story of the previous Rebbe. And this is a story from the 1940s in Brownsville, New York. There was a rabbi who was very much opposed to the Hasidic movement. And he used to get up and make speeches against the previous Rebbe. One week... He gets up in front of his congregation. He looks pretty uncomfortable. He starts to wipe his face. He's trying to catch his words. And finally he says, I'm standing here in front of you because I want to apologize and I want to take back all those things 
that he said about the previous Rebbe. And people were surprised. He was pretty sure of himself. He really said things with very clear opinions about what he thought about the previous Rebbe, and suddenly he's retracting his opinion. And he said like this, most of you know that he has a brother. His brother is unfortunately very ill, and he needs a serious medical procedure that will cost a lot of money. Now, he was thinking, who was he going to ask? He wasn't going to turn to his congregants because he knew they were struggling. He decided, you know what? I'm going to put an ad in the Morgan Journal, the morning journal. This was a Yiddish journal that was circulating at the time. Just a few words in the journal. Just a few words in the ad. He writes, A Yid Darf Hilf. A Jewish person needs help. And he writes a phone number. He said, only one person responded to the ad. It was the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He called me up and asked how he could help. And he told him, he said that his brother needs a serious medical procedure. He doesn't have the money. The Rebbe put the funds together and got him the entire sum of money in order to handle this procedure. You know, you think about a tzaddik. Yes, a tzaddik is on love with fire for Hashem. Yes, he might feel bad for another person, but what does he know? Which truth does he know in the fullest? That it's all about the deed. It's all about making that connection with the divine. A Jewish person needs help. This requires action. And he stopped and he made a phone call and he took care of the problem because ultimately this is the fusion with the divine. So this is what a mitzvah is. A mitzvah is a place where Hashem's will is completely manifest and there is no concealment of the countenance at all. Okay, now here's an example. We're going to look at somebody who stands in front of a king. We have to, we are trying to contrast over here the difference between feeling something and carrying out Hashem's will. So let's look at a man who stands in front of a king. He stands in front of this splendorous, awesome, majestic king, a real leader, a noble person. And he is so overcome with awe and emotions and feelings of just humility in front of the king to the extent that he actually faints. Okay. Scenario number two, he doesn't feel that much. He doesn't faint, but the king asked him to do something for him and he does it. Scenario number one is all about the man's feelings. The king didn't ask him to faint. He fainted. It's an extension of what he's feeling. Even the deepest feelings of nullification, even the deepest feelings of awe, it's about him. Scenario number two even if he's not fainting, and even if he's not feeling nullified, when he carries out the king's request, he is expressing the king himself. And that's what a mitzvah is. It's an expression of Hashem himself. So the mitzvah has no concealment of the countenance at all. Because the mitzvahs represent God's true inner will, and because in them there is no concealment of this will, Unlike the case in creation, therefore, the godly life force within them is by no means a separate entity. Ella, 
who may yuchad v'necha b'eretzayne v'hayu la'achadim mamash b'yechad gamor, but is united with and contained within God's will, and they, the mitzvot, are truly joined in perfect unity with God's will. So again, a mitzvah is a direct expression of what Hashem wants. It traverses all the universes and comes to be expressed and garbed, yes, even in physical terms. It comes to be expressed in a physical garb. But it breaks through everything, and essentially it says that in this physical world, if you take this certain thing at this certain time, it's like a code. This is the manifestation of the divine will. Now, a person could study the mitzvah of mezuzah, and they can be inspired and moved by the details of the mitzvah. Or they can study about the mezuzah and they can feel alienated and unmoved. It doesn't matter. It's not about the person's feelings. It's about the code. You put in the code this way and the connection is forged. It's not whether or not we feel it. The fact is the connection is happening. One time I was flying back from a wedding I just took a baby with me. I was with some sisters on the plane and my nine-year-old niece was on the plane and she comes to me. She was very exuberant the whole time, bouncing around. She was having her headphones and she comes to me and she says, you know, Rachel, I found something really amazing. What was it? She was watching on the screen, the plane speed the whole time. She said, you know, what's really amazing when we were moving the fastest, When we were flying the highest, I didn't feel anything at all. It felt like we were staying in one place. It's only when we were going more slowly and when we were flying at a lower altitude that I felt like we were really moving. So sometimes you don't even feel like you're moving, but that's when you're going at the fastest speed, at the highest altitude. And mitzvah is not about what you're feeling. A mitzvah is about what is actually happening. And here's an example that we brought up before. Rabbi Steinsalz brings for chapter 23. It's very poignant. It makes things very clear. Studying Torah, doing a mitzvah, is called in Kabbalistic terminology a union. In the physical world, we have the idea of union, the marital union. Now, the marital union results in the creation of a child. This creation of the child could either be accompanied by feelings of passion and romance and all type of physical sensations, or it could be unaccompanied by all these many feelings. But nevertheless, the creation of the child doesn't flow from the feelings. It flows from the actual union. And that's how it is with the mitzvah. The, crea- the connection is forged no matter what you're feeling. This is a union. It doesn't flow from the feelings. It flows from the act. The act of a mitzvah is pure manifestation of the divine will. It is thus clear why, in the above-mentioned metaphor, the mitzvot can serve as oil for the, divi- for the Shekhinah, for they are truly absorbed within and transformed into the light of the divine will, just as oil is absorbed within a flame. The Alter Rebbe will arrive at this conclusion after a preliminary discussion on what the Zohar means when it says that the light of the Shekhinah rests on man.
this exposition now follows. Okay, we're going to talk about what it means that the Shekhinah rests on man. Let's first summarize what we said until now. Until now, we said, yes, everything is the will of Hashem. But there's a big difference between everything else and a mitzvah. When it comes to a mitzvah, there is no concealment of the countenance. It is pure manifestation of the divine will. It is the internal aspect of his will. When a person does a mitzvah, any energy of the soul that they expend in using the mitzvah becomes part of this. It becomes part of the divine reality. It becomes totally absorbed within the divine will. Now, let's look at what it means, the resting of the Shekhinah. The resting of the Shekhinah means, meaning when we single out a specific object from a world filled with the Shekhinah by saying that the divine presence rests upon that object, its uniqueness lies in, and the altar is going to continue the revelation of godliness, but we're going to get there in a minute. Okay, let's look at human relationships. Think about somebody you really love. It could be a spouse, a child, a really good friend. When you think about that person and you are inspired by feelings of love towards that person, you feel a deep connection to that person. Something of the other person as if rests within you. And if the feeling is that close and that strong, you might even feel what the other person needs. Just from having feelings towards that person, that connection is made and something of the other person lies within you. This is only true with regard to human relationship. When it comes to human relationship, it's not about self-nullification. No, you have your identity. The person you love has their identity. And the connection is forged by the strong feelings and you are deeply found within each other. In contrast, human relationship with the divine is utterly different. In order to have a relationship with the divine, there cannot be an identity. There cannot be any sense of self. And this is what we mean when we talk about the resting of the Shekhinah. What does it mean, the resting of the Shekhinah? Elsewhere in Tanya, in Igeras HaKadosh 25, the Alter Rebbe makes a distinction between the resting of the Shekhinah and the enclothing of the Shekhinah. The Shekhinah is everywhere. The Navi Yeshaya says, The entire world is filled with his glory. The Zohar says, There is no space devoid of him. Hashem is everywhere. When the Shekhinah is garbed within something, it's giving it its life energy. And it could be garbed within something that even defies the Shekhinah. In contrast, when the Shekhinah rests upon something, it means it is manifest through something. It means that there's a clear recognition of the divine. The Shekhinah is manifest in the Holy Temple. The Shekhinah is manifest in a prophet as he prophecies. The Shekhinah is manifest in the words of Torah that we speak. All these are manifestations of the Shekhinah. What does it mean that the Shekhinah is manifest? And this is what the Alter Rebbe explains now. The resting of the Shekhinah means, The revelation of godliness and the Ein Sof light in that particular object this means to say 
that this object is comprised within God's light and is nullified out of existence towards him, meaning it has no separate identity. In order for the Shekhinah to be manifest within someone or something, it has to be utterly subsumed within the divine light. It cannot have a separate identity. She'az hu she'shayra umeskala boy Hashem echad. For only then can the one God rest upon it, upon that object, and reveal himself in it. So let's discuss the idea of the one God. This is something that we say every single day. What do we say? We say, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad. Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Doesn't just mean that he is the only authority, that he is the only one who has control, that he is the only God. What it actually means is that there is nothing else besides him. In order for him to be revealed in something, it has to be something that doesn't contradict this truth. If something has an identity of its own, it means that there's Hashem and there's me. Does that express that God is one? Does that express that God is manifest everywhere and he is the only existence that doesn't manifest this ultimate truth that there's nothing else besides him? In order to be a resting of the Shekhinah, in order for there to be a manifestation of the divine, there has to be an expression of Hashem Echad, that there exists nothing else besides him. Even a tzaddik who cleaves to him with abundant love, a most lofty level of love and attachment to God, even in the case of such a tzaddik, no thought can truly grasp him at all. There is no intellect, not in the higher world, not in the lower world, Nowhere is there an intellect that can grasp the divine. It doesn't mean our mind can't grasp anything. Our mind can grasp that there is a creator. With our mind, we can know about him. And whatever we grasp, we grasp. But to know the essence of him, to know him, no mind can grasp him at all. The Zohar says, Lace machashava tvisa bach klal. No thought can apprehend you at all. He is not graspable. To grasp something means to have the proper vessels to contain it. The eye grasps vision. It is able to see because there is, it is the proper vessel in order to grasp things through vision. Ear is a proper vessel to grasp things through hearing. What is a proper vessel to grasp the divine? Nothing can grasp him. He is beyond all parameters and there is nothing that can grasp him at all. So we're looking at a tzaddik and we're saying, why can't a tzaddik grasp him? But even if he loves him, he on the highest level of love, but he is an identity. He has an intellect. Even the most supernal angels with their superior intellect cannot grasp him at all. Ki amitas Hashem elekim emes now we're going to work through this slowly. For the true implication of the phrase, God is the true Lord, 
is his unity and oneness. And he alone exists. And there is absolutely nothing besides him. As explained in chapter 20, the statement God is one means not only that he is the sole God, but also that he is the only being that truly exists. All else is totally nullified before him. So I'm sure that there's at least a few people in class who have been baffled and mystified by the idea of truth. What is truth? Well, in the words of the, Yirmi, of the Navi Yirmiya, truth is Hashem Elohim Ms. God, your Lord is true. The famous philosopher, the Ralbag, the 14th century philosopher, Rabbi Levi Bar Gershon, says like this. Truth is certain to agree with itself from every angle. In order for something to be true, it has to be indispensable. It means that it has to exist. If something exists only temporally for a limited amount of time, it is proof that it doesn't have to exist, and therefore it's not the ultimate truth. In discussing a spring that is kosher for the ashes of the red heifer, the Mishnah disqualifies waters that lie. What are waters that lie? This is a spring that dries up once in seven years. Now it's a spring, but because it dries up that often, once in seven years, even now when it's a spring, it's not a spring. These are waters that lie. The fact that they don't exist long-term means they don't exist even now. These are not the truth. So in order for something to be considered the truth, it means it has to be. It cannot not be. If it could not be, it means that it's not the truth. So we're looking at truth. Truth means it has to exist. It cannot be without it. Now, if something exists only for a certain amount of time, it's not true. What if something exists forever, but only in a certain space? The fact that it exists only in this space and not in another space means that it's possible to exist and it's possible not to exist. It's not the ultimate truth. And even something that exists forever, but in every space, also lacks the element of truth because the space itself is not it. There is something else besides it. Ultimate truth pervades everything, exists in every which space, and in every which time. The, the Chachamim say, Hashem is called Hamakom, the place. And the Chachamim explain, he is the place of the world. His world is not his place. It's not a space that hosts him. He hosts the space. You know why? Because there's only one truth. If we're going to use that criteria, that it exists forever, and it exists in every which space, and even the space is it, that's the only true truth, that's Hashem. So if we're going to look at the unrelenting definition of truth, there is only one truth. 
and that is Hashem. And let's look at the words of the Rambam and the fundamental principles of the Torah, right in the beginning of Mishnah Torah. And he writes like this, He alone is true, and no other entity possesses truth that compares to his truth. The Rambam further writes, Hashem brought into being all existence, all the beings of the heavens, the earth, and what is in between them came into existence only from the truth of his being. All other entities require him. So the ultimate truth is Hashem. Now, let's look at this sentence again. For the true implication of the phrase, God is the true Lord, is his unity and oneness, that he alone exists and there is absolutely nothing besides him. So when we say that God alone exists, this is not a side auxiliary issue to the divine idea. It is the divine idea. We're not going to say Hashem is the creator. He is infinite. He is the conductor of all worlds. And also, he is the only reality. No, this is not a side issue. The ultimate core of the divine idea is that he is the only reality. The Cain, and if so... This person, meaning the above-mentioned Sadik who loves God and who is a separate being in his own self-perception, as is evident from the very fact that he loves God, rather than a non-entity, no thought of his can grasp him at all. So he is a separate being and he's not a non-entity, Because he is a separate being, just having an identity of his own constitutes something of a contradiction of the ultimate truth, that there is nothing else besides Hashem. The truth of the divine is that he alone exists and nothing exists besides him. If you're a being who loves him with the most passionate love, with a pleasurable love, but you're a being and something of your existence contradicts the truth that there's nothing else besides him. Something of your existence conceals the truth that there's nothing else besides Hashem. It's not a fault of our own. This is the way we were created. But nevertheless, having a consciousness, a separate identity means that this is not it. This is not the oil that's going to fuel the light of the Shekhinah. It has to be something else. We're here. We're in a body. We're a wick that's holding this holy fire. We need to supply the fire of the Shekhinah with oil. It can't be our rapturous love. Our rapturous love is not utterly subsumed within him. It has to be something that has no identity of its own. It has to be something that is pure manifestation of the divine will. It has to be something that it is expression of the ultimate truth that God, your Lord, is true. He alone exists. What is it? It has to be a mitzvah. I'm going to tell you a story of Dr. Velvel Green, a professor in Minnesota. 
Back in 1963, he was rising higher in the field of bacteriology, and that's also the time that he met Rabbi Feller. And he started to become closer to Yiddishkeit. He wasn't there yet. And Rabbi Feller introduced him to the Rebbe, and a warm correspondence developed between them. And he started to become more observant. They started to keep kosher. And at one point, he turned to Rabbi Feller and he said, I really respect your Torah knowledge, but you guys are still in the dark ages when it comes to science. I don't understand how you believe in creation. It's all about evolution. And he said, listen, I'm not an expert in the field at all, but I want to tell you that the Rebbe actually wrote something contradicting the theory of evolution. He said, really, I'd like to see it. And he's like, oh, please, who's going to contradict evolution? This makes no sense. And he wanted to argue out the letter with Rabbi Feller. And again, he said, look, not my field. I can't argue science with you. How about you write a letter to the Rebbe? Now, he really respected the Rebbe. And he thought, I'm not going to write in a condescending tone that a scientist would usually use to write to a layman. I'm going to write to the Rebbe like a fellow scientist. And he starts to refute the Rebbe's arguments one by one. And the next letters that he gets from the Rebbe have nothing to do with the letter that he wrote. And he thought, okay, the Rebbe conceded to me. His field is Torah. My field is science. And he understands that, you know, he should stick to his field. And he concedes to the fact that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to science. And in time, he made great strides. They started to keep family purity. They started to keep Shabbos. And then a while later, he gets a letter from the Rebbe. And in this letter... The Rebbe refutes point by point Dr. Green's objections to his supposed unscientific treatment of the subject. He writes, by the way, concerning the point that you wrote to me in regard to the Torah's account of creation, and he refutes Dr. Green's arguments point by point. And then the Rebbe writes, you're probably wondering why I waited this long to to respond to your remarks on the matter. But my job in life is not to win arguments. My job is to bring Jews closer to the Torah and its mitzvot. So yes, did the Rebbe have the wherewithal to argue science with Dr. Green, to prove him wrong, to refute him? Yes, but he never lost focus of the target. It's not about winning arguments. It's not about proving brilliance. It's not about figuring out who's the better scientist here. There's a goal here. It's connect the Jew with Hashem through the act of a mitzvah. And to win the argument wasn't the point. He wanted to bring Dr. Green closer to the Torah and its mitzvot. Once that was accomplished, then the Rebbe then addressed the other issue. But never to get sidetracked. The ultimate place where Hashem rests is in the act of a mitzvah. And that is the point of it all. Still talking about the tzaddik. V'ain or Hashem shayre umesgala boy. Even a tzaddik cannot grasp God and thereby become one with him through the faculties of his own soul. Therefore, God's light does not abide or manifest itself in him except through the fulfillment of the mitzvot, which constitute his actual will and wisdom without any concealment of countenance. Since the inner aspect of the divine will stands revealed only in the mitzvot, it is only by means of them that the light of the Shekhinah rests upon man, not through spiritual devotion alone. Concerning his aforementioned statement that the Ein Sof light reveals only in that 
only within that which is nullified before God and absorbed within him. The Alter Rebbe notes, and now the Alter Rebbe is going to bring a note from his teacher. So let's first review what we said until now. We're talking about the resting of the Shekhinah. Where does the Shekhinah manifest? The Shekhinah only manifests in that which is totally subsumed within the light of Hashem. Even a very lofty person with great feelings of love and passion, the light of the Shekhinah does not manifest within him because the ultimate divine truth is that God, your Lord, is true. He is the only reality and there is no existence outside of him. Anything that is not subsumed to that, anything that is not dissolved within that truth does not manifest the fact that Hashem is one. And that means that this person who loves Hashem with great love, yet he is not a non-being. He is a distinct entity. And therefore the divine cannot be manifest within him, but it can through the fulfillment of the mitzvah. Because in the fulfillment of the mitzvah, there is no concealment of the divine at all. So this is really the comfort to the Benoni. Because even if he doesn't have the feelings, this helps him in the struggle. A person can feel like, you know what? Look, that guy really feels it. But me, I don't really feel it. And for me, it's a big struggle. And my act without feeling is probably not worth that much. So why do it? No, 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 that's not true. Your act without feeling is worth just as much as the other person's act with feeling. And yes, feeling does count. And we will speak about it later in Tanya. But for now, let's just realize this. Hashem dwells within his Torah and his divine service. This is the comfort to the Benoni to know that in the act of the mitzvah, there's pure manifestation of the divine will and Hashem dwells within him in this act. And here's another story. Here's a story of Reb Mendel Vechter. He was a Satmar Chassid. Now Reb Mendel Vechter became exposed to the teachings of the Tanya. He used to study with Rabbi Yoel Khan, one of the foremost thinkers in Chabad philosophy. Now his rule was, you can study Tani with me. I only want to hear what the Alter Rebbe has to say. He doesn't want to hear what the Rebbe has to say. So that was the deal. He will only quote the Alter Rebbe. But of course, in order to explain Tanya, Rabbi Ol Khan did have to use some interpretations that the Rebbe taught. And finally, Rabbi Mendel Vechter caught wind and he realized that these deep explanations are coming from the Rebbe and he wanted to meet the Rebbe. And it came to a point where he would go to the Rebbe's Fabringens but he couldn't be there out in the open because it was actually dangerous for him. So they would hide him in the broadcast room and he would be there at the Fabrengen looking at the Rebbe through a hole in the wall. Now, one time he wanted to go to Fabrengen. He was in Williamsburg. He had a meeting with a big rabbi in the community, the Dayan, and he was rushing already. He didn't want to miss the Fabrengen. The Dayan asked him to wait. He said, I owe you 14 cents as change for something. Could you wait a minute? I want to get you 14 cents. So Reb Mendel looks at the Dayan and he's surprised, like 14 cents, please. Like, is that really significant? So the Dayan looks at him and says, it seems to you that 14 cents are not so significant. But do you know, with 14 cents, you can betroth 14 women. Okay. 
He goes to the Rebbe's Farbringen. He's hiding in the broadcast room. He's looking through the hole. In the middle of the Farbringen, the Rebbe stops. And the Rebbe says, A person can be walking down the street and find 14 cents. And they might think that 14 cents are not significant. But they are wrong. 14 cents means 14 times tzedakah. It means 14 connections with Atmos Saif Barahu, the essence of the infinite, infinite one. So the Rebbe looks at a coin and what does he see? The value of a connection with Hashem that lasts forever. Every single mitzvah is a connection with Hashem that lasts forever. It is all in the deed. Why is it all in the deed? Because ultimately the deed is not the expression of the person. We have to remember when we have these rapturous feelings of love and these deep feelings of nullification and awe and humility, at the end of the day, they're an outgrowth of our own identity. And they are very, very important. We will get there. We will discuss it. These feelings are important, but ultimately they're an outgrowth of our own feelings, our own identity, our own self-perception. A mitzvah, on the other hand, is not about the person's feelings. A mitzvah is pure expression of the divine will, the internal aspect of the divine will. It's Hashem's essence, as it were, being manifest within this world. And when a person does a mitzvah, they become subsumed within this act. And in the act of the mitzvah, there is the dwelling of the Shekhinah. So it is specifically the mitzvah that acts as an oil for the light of the Shekhinah to abide. It is specifically in the act of the mitzvah that the truth that all there is as Hashem is manifest. So I'm closing up class for now. Next week, we're going to explore Kabbalistic notes from the Alter Rebbe's teacher, the Magad of Mezrich, where he explains this idea from the writings of his teacher. And I'm opening up now for questions and discussion. Remember that you're on mute. So if you have something to say, please unmute your microphone.